Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. For this series, we've asked some of our regular Hey interviewers to choose their own personal Hey moments from our archive. These might be interviews they've done, that they've seen, or the interview they wish they had the chance to do. This week we are joined by writer and broadcaster Francine Stock. Hello, I'm Francine Stock, and for most of the past 30 years, except for the odd year here and there, in late May, early June, I've been going to the Hay Festival. That's partly because I have family there. I married someone from Hay in the days before the festival. There was such a time, children. And we've spent time living in this particularly beautiful landscape. So it's been a pleasure, of course, to appear on the Hay stages, but sometimes even better to be part of the audience with no responsibility but to listen and be engaged. As an archive, Hay Player offers all manner of treasures which you can discover at leisure. I'm going to start with a dramatic moment from nearly a quarter of a century ago, back in 1996. The poet Ted Hughes came to Hay on a grey, blustery day. When he stood in the tent to read from a new volume of collected poems, the wind was already tugging at the canvas. As the hour progressed, it gathered force and violence, slapping the roof and shaking the metal framework. Some in the audience began to look nervous. But Ted Hughes stood firmly, as if contending with the elements, his voice sounding above the tempest. It was both magnificent and somehow just right. He created a narrative that day which included his 1970 poem about the ravenous demands of love on a couple, the love pet. Was it an animal? Was it a bird? She stroked it. He spoke to it softly. She made her voice its happy forest. He brought it out with sugarlump smiles. Soon it was licking their kisses. She gave it the strings of her voice which it swallowed. He gave it the blood of his face, it grew eager. She gave it the licorice of her mouth, it began to thrive. He opened the aniseed of his future, and it bit and gulped, grew vicious, snatched the focus of his eyes. She gave it the steadiness of her hand. He gave it the strength of his spine, it ate everything. It began to cry, what could they give it? They gave it their calendars, it bolted their diaries. They gave it their sleep, it gobbled their dreams. Even while they slept, it ate their body skin and the muscle beneath. They gave it vows, its teeth clashed its starvation through every word they uttered. It found snakes under the floor, it ate them. It found a spider horror in their palms and ate it. They gave it double smiles and blank silence. It chewed holes in their carpets. They gave it logic, it ate the color of their hair. They gave it every argument that would come. They gave it shouting and yelling, they meant it. It ate the faces of their children. They gave it their photograph albums, they gave it their records, it ate the color of the sun. They gave it a thousand letters, they gave it money, it ate their future complete, it waited for them, staring and starving. They gave it screams, it had gone too far, it ate into their brains, it ate the roof, it ate lonely stone, it ate wind, crying famine, it went furiously off. They wept, they called it back, it could have everything. It stripped out their nerves, chewed, chewed, flavorless. It bit at their numb bodies, they did not resist. It bit into their blank brains, they hardly knew. It moved, bellowing through a ruin of starlight and crockery. It drew slowly off, they could not move. It went far away, they could not speak. Ted Hughes at Hay in 1996, and there's plenty more of that to listen to. 
He started life as a predominantly literary and arts festival, and over the years many great writers, prize winners, bestsellers, astonishing first-timers, venerable scribes have come to the town. I've had memorable encounters on stage with, among others, Kazuo Shiguru, Alan Bennett, Salman Rushdie, Faye Weldon, Jim Crace, and most recently William Boyd. But the festival has come over time to also have a wider celebration of ideas. So you can hear people talking directly about their extraordinary experience, whether it's science or philosophy, education, sport, politics, much, much more as well. For example, in 2013... I met Jodie Williams, a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for her work to eradicate landmines. As a teenager, Jodie protested against the war in Vietnam, certainly, but I was really impressed by her later assessment of what it takes to make sustainable, workable peace. And that's a definition wider than the absence of war. And Jodie Williams is open and honest not just about the horrors of war, but about the scale of sexual violence as a weapon of war. And when working in human rights in Central America, she was herself sexually assaulted by a man associated with one of the death squads. She talks about this as everything directly, no frills. Here are her thoughts on building the landmine campaign, beginning with her own introduction to the scale of the threat. I had done Central America for 11 years by then, from uh, February of 81 until, oh God, when I finally stopped, it was May of 92. But in that, from the end of um, 91, I was very burned out on Central America. If I had to talk about war and death squads and US military one more time, I was gonna get hysterical and run screaming down the street. I actually considered getting a straight job. I went to a, a job counselor to try to see if I could do something normal. That did not work out. She hated me and I hated her. <laughs> so when she asked me about the kinds of things I've done in my life, since I already knew I didn't like her and she was not going to help me, I started saying things like, well, I, you know, I met people from the Salvadoran death squads. <laughs> you, you know, all sorts of nasty things like that. And she just got freaked out and we knew nothing was going to happen there. I was saved from myself and getting a straight job by Bobby Muller of the Vietnam Veterans of America Foundation. He is a Vietnam vet. He was a Marine lieutenant and he was shot right here, taking that last hill before he was to come back to the US and he's been in a wheelchair ever since. He led a delegation of Vietnam vets back to the region um, quite a few years after the war and he was stunned to find that landmines you know, years and years after the end of the, the war there, were causing people to be killed and or maimed. And he knew that this was the direct result of the war that he had been involved in. And he explained, because, you know, when he said, I think we should, you know, try to ban landmines, I was like, why not ban nukes? Hmm. You know, it was right at the end of the Cold War, and supposedly we were going to be flooded with peace. And I thought, why don't we deal with nuclear weapons now, right? And he said, look, landmines are already killing people. You know, nuclear weapons twice, but so far they have not been used again. But landmines are, and we came up with the, the phrase, are weapons of mass destruction in slow motion. You put the weapon in the ground, it just sits there and waits for a victim to step on it. You never have to feed it, you never have to heal it. If, you know, if it gets hurt, you don't have to do anything. It just sits there and waits to kill. And he said that, 
you know, I think that that is reprehensible and we need to do something to get rid of the landmines in the world. And it was a challenge that I thought was pretty fascinating. I would certainly get out of Central America. There are landmines in 80 countries in the world, so I could, you know, start thinking globally. I'd learn more about the laws of war and why these weapons were illegal already, in our view. And so I said yes, and we grew from two NGOs, the vets and one in Germany, so I could call it the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, which sounds so magnificent, but we were two with a staff of one meat. <laughs> and you talk, I mean, you talk about the process, the way that you, that you build a campaign, mm -hmm. also um, working you know, with your husband, Steve, as well. And there is that point where you begin to get to the governmental level mm -hmm. and you start having... Now, the frustrations of that, the way that governments will sort of come on board for a bit, but then their own domestic interests will drag them back. You mean the way they lie? The way they lie. The way they lie. The way they, they, they draw back um, yes. and change their minds. I mean, for somebody, you know, you, you are plain speaking, you have a fuse of a certain length. I mean, how difficult... I know that the two of you worked together in negotiating teas and perhaps played good cop, bad cop a bit. Not on purpose. He is the good cop. <laughs> he knows how to wear a suit. He was the first man I went out with who wore a suit. It was frightening. <laughs> and he worked with Congress for a while, so he knows how to talk nicely to diplomats and men in suits. And but I for you, I mean... Care. You don't care. I don't care. No, I really, I talk to prime ministers and generals and colonels the same way I talk to you. I want them to recognize that when they take off their uniform, whether it's a military uniform or the suit uniform of the diplomat, and they go home at night, what do you think? What do you think about? And I would get in their face and ask them, if it was your kids who were going to step on landmines, would you still be just trying to change a period and a comma in an existing law that does nothing? Or would you be out there making sure that we banned that weapon and we got them out of the ground so your kids would not die? And, you know, if you talk to them that way, slowly but surely, somewhere you begin to wear them down. And we used to get so angry, you know, they're sitting in Geneva in their suits, looking out at the magnificent lake and Mont Blanc in the Alps. And they're talking about people all over the world who are, you know, going to be dying. Every 20 minutes at that time, somebody would step on a landmine somewhere in the world and either be killed or maimed. And these guys are sitting there smoking, having their coffee, and, you know, saying nothing about getting rid of the weapon. And we used, I got so mad one time, I wanted to pick up their conference table and carry it over and put it in the middle of a minefield in Cambodia and not show them the safe lane out <laughs> until they wrote a treaty banning landmines. Mm. Well, we couldn't do that, but we had some creative people in that campaign. I don't remember who did it, but one of our campaign groups made a minefield with sensors, of course. We weren't going to blow them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Some of them, yes. But now I'm a peace laureate. I have to be peaceful. <laughs> so, you know, it had, like, straw. And, I mean, it looked like a, a field somewhere. And if you would step on the sensor, it would blow up, make the noise. And I walked over, and I have to admit, it was scary. Even though it wasn't a real landmine, it was really scary. 
and they had to walk over that thing to get into the conference room. And, you know, we just did things to put it in their face. There was a clock counting the number of victims as they, for two and a half years, talked about amending an existing law and did nothing. So you got to see how many people were killed or maimed as these men are sitting there doing nothing. And we had landmine victims from around the world come and give them millions of signatures of people calling for a ban. And we just did everything to put it in their face and make them recognize that they can't just play their little government games behind closed doors. And it worked. It really worked. But there must have been a point where you, I mean, did you ever think this just, we're never going to get there? Or could you feel the incremental improvement in the situation? When, we, when I was asked to think about creating a campaign and I decided I would do it, I thought at that point we wouldn't get a treaty for decades. And um, I, even though I thought that, I also thought if we can do anything at all that helps people, you know, the, the, the millions of people living with landmine threat every day, if we did something that helped them, if we got rid of some of the minefields, if you know, anything that we could do to start changing thinking, how awesome would that be? So when we achieved the treaty within five years, it was like totally mind-boggling, you know? We got frustrated, of course, in the two and a half years in Geneva. But then, you know, but then when that process of trying to amend the existing treaty completely failed, by that point we'd already um, developed strong partnerships with governments that wanted to ban the weapon, that were as strong in the call to ban them as we were. And Canada stood up and challenged governments to actually negotiate a treaty in one year, and they did. It was it's a little more complicated than that, but essentially, <laughs> Canada challenged them, and we made it happen. And it was... One of the best days of my life, really, was when the treaty was negotiated. The U.S. had tried to trash it, of course, had tried to make it meaningless. The world stood up against them and said no. And we got a clear, simple, and elegant treaty banning the use, production, trade, and stockpiling of that weapon. The first time in history that a weapon used by almost every military in the world for almost a century had been banned. I mean, it was... Un I mean, can you imagine? It was, it was so exciting that people, ordinary people, got together and we were able to push government so hard that they actually did what they were supposed to do anyway. They should have done this on their own. But we helped them recognize that they were failing in their duty. And we achieved the ban. Nobel Peace Prize laureate Jody Williams and you can hear there the audience reaction. That audience is so important. Hay offers the chance for anyone in that room, even the virtual room these days, to put their question. Here, as an example, is one of Hay's most eminent and regular speakers, astronomer royal, cosmologist and astrophysicist, Lord Rees, Martin Rees, talking in 2016 about black holes, alien life and the multiverse, from a field to infinity and beyond, as it were. Then the Astronomer Royal takes questions from the audience. As we go back near the beginning, as I implied, things have become more speculative. We can be fairly confident 
back to when the universe was uh, um, uh, the size of the solar system, as I mentioned. That's about when it's been expanded for a nanosecond. Things are uncertain earlier on because we don't understand the relevant physics. But let's uh, uh, not be too uh, depressed because 50 years ago we didn't know it was a Big Bang at all. And the fact that we can talk with a few percent accuracy about its evolution from the first nanosecond is an amazing achievement. And 50 years from now, we may have gone further. Uh, but of course, you can always say we go one step further. Always you can say things are as they are, because they were as they were. All we can do is push back the causal chain a bit further. And as far as the energy is concerned, um, there is, um, uh, and we've known for 50 years, that there is a genuine sense in which the universe has zero energy. Um, which uh, may allay that particular perplexity. And that's because um, there's two kinds of energy. There's, there's um, Einstein's mc squared, which is the energy which all mass has. But it's the negative energy if you are deep in a gravitational potential well. So, for instance, we have lower energy on the Earth than if we were up in space. And uh, if we were uh, in a black hole, then, in a sense, the uh, negative energy of gravity would roughly be comparable with the positive energy of the mc squared. And in the uh, theories, according to Einstein's uh, models for the expanding universe, uh, there is that cancellation. So in a sense, it's not quite such a contradiction as you might think for something very large to emerge from something very small. Yeah. Uh, hello, Professor Rees. Um, firstly, may I say thank you for a enthralling talk. Um, and secondly, I'd like to ask um, what do you think, uh, or when, if ever, do you think we will achieve interstellar travel or artificial successes to us? Yes. And um, if we do, which model do you think it would be, the warp yes. or uh, yes. various other methods that yes. are yes. suggested? Well, when you say we, of course, uh, um, I think it may be a post-human enterprise um, because uh, a thousand-year journey is not daunting to an immortal robot, as it's daunting to us. But I think um, some of you may have seen that uh, uh, this Yuri Milner has now uh, uh, funded research into uh, a project whose aim would be to send a tiny spacecraft weighing about a gram to the nearest star by accelerating it with a huge laser to about 20% of the speed of light, and then it would get to Alpha Centauri in about 20 years. Um, and uh, uh, this would be, of course, in a sense, a remarkable feat. Um, I am glad that this is being studied, but there are huge technical challenges. You have to build a huge laser. You have to uh, have uh, um, a spacecraft of only one gram, which has all the works in it to send back some sort of signal, not from the distance of Pluto, but from far, far further away. Um, and you have to make sure that the uh, um, laser doesn't just vaporize the thing. Uh, <laughs> which means that it, it, it can't absorb more than one part in a million of the, of the instant radiation. So there are lots of challenges. Um, and uh, if those could all be met, then it would in principle be possible if governments or people wanted to spend tens of billions of dollars to send a tiny probe to Alpha Centauri. Um, I honestly doubt that's a very sensible thing to do, because if we think of uh, what we might be able to do 30 years from now, um, I think we will have robotic fabricators in space that could build huge telescopes, huge lightweight telescopes, um, uh, maybe even almost the size of a solar system, um, to uh, probe far more deeply. So if you 
imagine what might be the top project if we extrapolate technology for 30 years and uh, put $10 billion on the table. I still doubt that that would be one's first choice. But I think it's important to bear in mind how far we've got in the last 50 years, and therefore these ideas um, don't, uh, uh, shouldn't be dismissed as completely crazy. But I do think that interstellar travel uh, is for post-humans, not for us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yes? If we find advanced life on another planet, how do you think their evolutionary rates will differ from ours? Um, well, that's very interesting. I think, first, advanced life, it's, it'll be on a planet around another star. Um, and um, I, I say two things. Um, we, we don't know how typical the evolutionary track was here on Earth, and biologists disagree about um, how many contingencies there were. If we re-ran evolution on the Earth, would we get to something like humans after three or four billion years or not? We don't, we don't know that. Um, and uh, uh, the other point that's relevant is that there are some stars which are two billion years older than the Sun, but which also have planets around them and would have enough uh, uh, chemical elements in the periodic table to make planets and life. And you might think that life would have had a head start on those. So if life evolved as fast on those planets, then it should be a billion years ahead of us. So the question is, why aren't they here? And this is a famous debate, um, uh, which perhaps suggests that advanced life is, is rare. Martin Rees there, allowing us to glimpse our likely descendants. Hay is a stage for all kinds of performance, music, drama or poetry, sparky one-off juxtapositions of readers and texts. Sometimes they're timely or comic or romantic. Sometimes... And I wasn't there for this, and I wish I had been, but listening to it is still pretty good. Simply a great performer enjoying her audience. The poet Maya Angelou, who died in 2014, came to Hay in 2002 to talk about the final volume of her memoir, A Song Flung Up to Heaven. That's an account of her years amongst the civil rights movers in the 1960s. But that night, that moment, she flung out verses across the Welsh borders, and everyone, Angelou and audience alike, had a blast. I went to a, a <clears throat> vegetarian restaurant. It's, I, I may be using the wrong phrase. I, I went to a place where they served vegetarian food. And maybe, maybe it wasn't a restaurant. <clears throat> And I really wanted that day, I wanted some rice and vegetables. So I went in, this was 20 years ago, and I ordered the rice and vegetables. The woman took my order, and as she walked away, I was still smoking at the time. I didn't know, very few people really knew that smoking could kill you at the time. So I reached in my purse and got out a fresh package of cigarettes, unopened. The woman came back. She almost throttled me. She said, don't you dare. How can you? Oh, this is filthy. Oh, I get. So I said, wait, miss, please. Get yourself together. I mean, please. <laughs> you know, if you don't want people to smoke, say so. That's all. You should have some signs up here. She said, we thought anybody who would come into a health food diner <laughs> would already know you shouldn't smoke. I said, not necessarily. 
And I work so hard to pry myself loose from my illiteracy that I like every chance I can find to see if I can read a word or two. But nothing I said, there was nothing that would make her laugh. Or as a kid say, she wouldn't crack her face. She wouldn't. So she, now mind you, I hadn't pulled that little string, you know, that little cellophane thing. The thing was completely closed. She said, you are risking everybody's life in the, I said, wait. I said, well, these people just started coming, didn't they? She said, no, these are regulars. They've been coming for years. I looked at the people, they were like, I said, I wouldn't tell it. And not looking any better than that? Oh, my. <laughs> so I wrote a poem, a piece of doggerel, it may be, called Health Food Diner. I'm happy to tell you this. The American Meat Packers Association did not give me any money, but they, they published 200,000 copies of this. No sprouted wheat and soya shoots and Brussels in a cake. Carrot straw and spinach raw. Today, I need a steak. (laughs) Not thick brown rice and rice pilau and mushrooms creamed on toast. Turnips mashed and parsnips hashed. I'm dreaming of a roast. Health food folks around the world are thinned by anxious zeal. They look for help in seafood kelp. I count on breaded veal. No smoking signs, raw mustard greens, zucchini by the ton, uncooked kale, and bodies frail are sure to make me run to loins of pork and chicken thighs and Standing ribs so prime, pork chops brown and fresh ground round, I crave them all the time. Irish stews and boiled corned beef and hot dogs by the scores or any place that saves a space for smoking carnivores. In the uh, course of, I, I appreciated what the poet Ben said and, and um, his statement that I spent some years as a, as a mute. Um, <clears throat> when I was three and my brother four, five, we were sent from California to a little village in Arkansas about the size of this stage, (laughs) to my paternal grandmother and her other sibling, my Uncle Willie. Now, I think I told this the last time, but I'm going to tell it again. Uncle Willie was crippled. His whole right side was paralyzed. Mama thought he would, my grandmother, we called her Mama. Mama thought he was paralyzed because he'd fallen off a porch when he was a couple of years old. 
Of course, we found that he had some neurological malady and uh, his whole right side. The left side was huge because on that side of the family, we tend to be 6'2 and 6'5 and all that. Uh, my Uncle Willie had huge hands. Now, they owned the only black-owned store in the town of Stamps. And so my grandmother and Uncle Willie needed me and my brothers to help in the store. Uncle Willie was crippled. My grandmother was old. She was probably 50. (laughs) (laughs) So they needed us to work in the store. My grandmother started teaching us to read and write probably the same afternoon we arrived. And Uncle Willie taught me to do my times tables, the multiplication tables. He would grab me by my clothes in the back right here and stand me in front of a pot-bellied stove. And he'd say, now, sister, I want you to do your threeses. Sister, do your fiveses. Do your nineses. I learned my multiplication tables exquisitely. I mean, even now, 70 years after, I can be awakened in the middle of the night after copious libation and loud revelry (laughs) and ask, do your twelveses. (laughs) I was so sure somehow that if I didn't learn, Uncle Willie would open that pot-bellied stove with fire in it, throw me in it, and still manage to close the stove. I found out he was so tender-hearted, he wouldn't allow a moth or a spider to be killed in the store. You had to take whatever insect, take it outside, and let it go. Well, <clears throat> I'm sorry to say my Uncle Willie died. And I went down to Arkansas to see about affairs. I stopped in Little Rock. I was met by one of America's great treasures. Uh, Miss Daisy Bates. She died last year, Miss Bates. But Miss Bates met me at the airport. She said, girl, I don't have to tell you she's black, right? She said, girl, so, listen, I know you're staying overnight in Little Rock. Okay. There's somebody dying to meet you, and uh, I want to bring him to your hotel. I said, okay. She brought about 30 people to the hotel. But she brought this black man who was really... I said, how do you do? He said, I don't want to shake your hand. I want to hug you. I said, I sure appreciate it. He gave me a wonderful hug. He said, now you're down here in Arkansas because Willie has died. My jaw fell to my chin that this elegant man way up north in Little Rock would even know of my Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie was so ashamed of his condition, he wouldn't even go to Louisville, Arkansas, which was five miles from Stamps and the county seat. And this man in a three-piece suit, I mean, he said, the state of Arkansas has lost a great man losing Willie. I asked him, Uncle Willie? He said, the United States. I asked him, W.M. Johnson? 
He said, the world. I said, let me sit down. He said, uh, in the 20s, I was the only child of a blind mother. Your Uncle Willie gave me a job in your store, paid me 10 cents a week, made me love to learn. He taught me my times tables. <laughs> I asked him, how did he do it? He said, he used to grab me right here. <laughs> he said, because of him, I'm who I am today. You want to know? I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas. First black man in the South. I looked at Willie. So I wrote a song, which is sung by Miss Roberta Fly. Then I wrote it as a poem, and then I wrote the music. And it just shows me how each one of us has the possibility, the license, the permission, the responsibility of being rainbows in the clouds. Willie was a man without fame. Hardly anybody knew his name. Crippled and limping and always walking lame. He said, I keep on moving and moving just the same. Solitude was the climate in his head. Emptiness was the partner in his bed. Pain echoed in the steps of his tread. He said, but I keep on following where the leaders led. I will cry and I will die. But my spirit is the soul of every spring. Look for me and you will see that I'm present in the songs that children sing. People called him uncle, boy, and hey. Said, you can't live through this another day. And then they waited to hear what he would say. He said, I'm living in the games that children play. You may enter my sleep and people my dreams and threaten my early morning's ease, but I keep coming. I'm following. I'm laughing. I'm crying. I'm certain as a summer breeze. Look for me. Ask for me. My spirit is a surge of open seas. Call for me. Call upon me. I'm the rustle in the autumn leaves. When the sun rises, I am the time. When the children live and laugh and learn and love, I am the rhyme. Just call me Cripple Willie. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can find over 8,000 more recordings on the Hay Player on our website. Join us next time for another trip through the Hay Archives.